what we call circular lifetime value. I think a lot of brands think about customer lifetime value. It's very linear. It's very like buy more frequently and buy more when you do. And we're like, well, how do we get them to buy and then sell and then buy and then sell and really create circularity there? So bringing in those new customers is a big part of it. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Lex Kefauber here, and I will be your host today. On the podcast, we have the VP of Partnerships for a hot new upcoming brand called Recurate, which I am super excited to get into. Now, you may not know this brand, but I bet you've used their product, and if you haven't, you will soon. They're enabling brands to create resale platforms within their own ecosystems. So for instance, let's take a partner that they're launching soon, Fry Boots. You buy a pair of Fry Boots and you want to resell those Fry Boots, but you want to make sure that you're actually going to be able to resell them in a way that recoups as much value as possible as a seller. And as a buyer, you're buying authentic products. Recurate is creating a platform that allows brands to do that within their own brand ecosystem. This is our conversation with Karen Dilly, the VP of Partnerships for Recurate. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. As always, the queen of the North, Jessica Miles. I, you just made my entire life, like I... Oh my God, I had a whole thing I was going to say, but that's all I've ever wanted. Can I be riding a polar bear and have I presume Mr. you Madden are usually my, riding a polar uh, bear. Husband? Yeah. Like I can only see things. like the top third of you. So I presume at the bottom, you may actually be a polar bear. Part polar bear? Yeah. That's yeah, an you're accurate a assumption. Polar minotaur. A polar minotaur. <laughs> And wow. joining us today uh, is Karen Dilly of Recurate. Karen, welcome in. Thank you. You can only see the top half of me too, but as far as I know, I am no animal underneath. So there's that. We all have time. <laughs> this is a progress. The things are changing fast. So but like she's gonna like grow it like a, a lizard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Your times these days. We don't right. know. Right. I can't tell you that the future holds. Can't. <laughs> But we can definitely talk about where we are in the present and specifically what we're going to be digging into today is our our human relationship with stuff. And we're going to break that down in lots of ways, but starting with what you guys do at Recurate, because we think a lot about not only like how we interact with stuff, but specifically fashion and apparel. So super interested about it. Give us the lay of the land. What is the business? What do you guys do and how is it helping to save the planet? Love that. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, about Recurate, we are a tech integration for brands and retailers um, into their commerce, e-commerce and physical commerce as a way for them to engage in resale and power their circular economy. So that is a lot of like sustainability jargon in one yeah. sentence. <laughs> Let's break that down as like, I'm a consumer. Break, break what does that, that mean to me? That means um, historically uh, what we've seen tremendous growth in the past five years in resale. I mean, this won't surprise any of you all. You know, I worked at the real rail for four years. 
ThreadUp, Poshmark, Depop, you're seeing all these, what we call third-party marketplaces pop up. And what Recurie did, we started almost two years ago now. So in February of 2020, our founders, Adam and Wilson said, there is a disconnect between all of this resale that's happening, all these marketplaces growing and what the brands are doing. And so they wanted to find a way and build a technology to bring those two worlds together. So what they built was a tech integration that you can put directly onto your e-commerce site and be able to host resale. So we host peer-to-peer resale. So a customer could go on and essentially the same kind of thing they would do on Poshmark or eBay, where they fill out a form, list their item and sell it directly to another person. People can now do that with brands. So for example, we work with outer known Kelly Slater's like cool surf brand. Um, So what you can do is if you had bought outer known in the past few years, you can go on directly to Outer Known site, click into your order history, and list an item directly from there. So you make it really easy. You have all the original images, all the descriptions, stuff like that. You post a couple of pictures of what it looks like now, and you can sell directly to anybody. So it's really bringing that the brands back into that resale process and into that ecosystem. So customers can have choice now. They can buy Outer Known on OuterKnown.com or somewhere else. Okay, so. If we were to if we were to create an analogy here about how this would look in the real world, leaving aside the tech integration, if I walk into a store, I can choose to buy the new things that have never been worn by anyone, or for a discounted price, things that have been worn by somebody else, but I know are actually the real things from this brand itself. So we're not going to be fake stuff that someone else is telling me. And you have created a way to make that model something that is able to be done in a digital platform. So if I go to a brand's website, I can choose the new stuff or I can see what other people are selling that is the same brand, but things that have been pre-loved. Or both, yeah. So now we give you that optionality. So customers, we've seen a massive change in customer behavior to really engage in the resale market. And so we wanted customers to be able to do that directly through the brand. So yes, you are absolutely right. You can go on, you can buy secondhand, you can buy new, and you can buy both together. And really, it's the only place that you can buy both together. Great. Can I just say, like, I love that as a concept because um, thrift store shopping stresses me out. As a person, I hate the disorganization. Um, I don't like it at all. So if I could go like into a store that I know and I like their stuff um, and maybe get something that's like more friendly, uh, environmentally friendly or whatever, um, that would make my life a whole lot less stressful. Absolutely. And I, you and my mom both hate thrift store shopping. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so what's interesting to me is that there are a lot of people who like brands. They know their size in the brand. They know their cut that they like. They want to engage with it. Um, but to find it secondhand feels a bit like a hunt. It feels tedious. It feels just a little hard, honestly. And so what we wanted to do is make it really easy too. So if you know your brand, you know what you want to go buy, you can easily find it secondhand. So let's talk about that, that the environmental impact that Jess alluded to. So how does this play into the overall question of how we are going to continue to provide a more sustainable option for us as you know people in the world, but people to buy things in the world as well? Yeah, I mean, it won't surprise you or probably any of your listeners that fashion is is 
high polluting industry, you know, arguably the second or third worst after big oil. Um, so when you think about what are sustainable items, how do I buy in a smart way? Um, Lex, we've talked about this, like it's, it's a bit opaque, um, on what you can do and how sustainable brands are, what does their supply chain really look like? What does that mean? There are a lot of questions there. Um, but the way we think about it is, a really great way to know that you're buying sustainable is to buy secondhand. The product's already been made. It already exists. It's out there. So you can buy something secondhand because you're giving it a second, third, fourth, fifth life. Um, so we see that customer behavior and that like it's it's easy. It's tra it's transparent. You know, you essentially know what you're engaging with um, because you know someone used it before. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if I may build on that, uh, we see in fashion, this idea of like hyper planned obsolescence. So they make clothes to be destroyed very quickly. And if you knew that there was more value in those clothes because they would last longer, then it could incentivize the clothiers, the companies as well to source better materials, to make better clothes, expecting them to have two, three, four users over time so that we are not creating this idea that we're going to buy something, wear it three times and throw it away or seven times on average. So the upstream effects of influencing these brands to invest more in making less better things could also be a systemic change. Yeah. So this goes back a little bit to my early days of my career working at Sotheby's. Um, and Sotheby's is not accessible for most people. I fully understand that. Um, but what was interesting is that a lot of people purchase their art um, thinking of it as an investment or some aspect of why they were purchasing was an investment. And it was high value, high ticket. So they wanted to make sure they could enjoy it for however many years, then turn around and resell it, hopefully for a gain. Um, and it's interesting that technology has allowed people to think about that with their clothing, their accessories, their handbags, that as well. So we see customers changing behavior. You know, they um, we used to see this at the real world. They would come to us. Uh, they'd say, I want to consign these items. We would say, oh, you know, it's pretty high discount on the secondary market for these items. They don't really retain their value. And the next time we would go then talk to the customer six months, a year later, they will have bought different brands because they're like, oh, I want to buy brands that I know will retain value or retain more value on the secondary marketplace. So really that consumer behavior already changed and brands started to understand it. My favorite example is um, Fendi in the Zuka print. They saw that there was a huge demand in the vintage market for this Zuka print. And so then they started making it new. So they're also getting these learnings and understandings of what customer demand is from the secondary market. Mm -hmm. Which to take it a step further to your question, I think is fascinating. And one of the things that Recurate is really trying to push and, and help our brands think about is how can you take data from the secondary market and help you change your strategy for your new items? So how do you learn where your fault points are in your product? How do you learn how often your customers are, are or how long they use an item for and how often they want to switch the item out? All of that is really meaty data for them to create better new products for their customers. So mm -hmm. thinking through what does that look like and how do we give them that data back when they own the resale marketplace, they get to hold all that data and use it to curate their strategy. I'm about to talk to a lot of numbers, Jess. So do you want to talk about things that aren't numbers? Theoretically, if these brands are looking at like secondary market stuff um, and the example you used, uh, which sort of sounded like a different language to me because uh, I'm not super plugged into the fashion thing, but 
the with like going with the Zuka print um, that everybody was into, would that help lessen the environmental impact? Because they're if brands are more tapped into like what people are actually buying and like want, then they're not um, producing like twenty five red T shirts that nobody wants and that they like would then have to get rid of or put in a landfill. Yeah, and J- Jess, I think by 25, you mean like 25,000, you know, right. like these are big scale decisions that they make every season of what items they're going to put out. And so I think when you have more data and understanding of what market demand is, you can meet that demand rather than doing things like creating 25,000 red shirts when everyone wants blue for the season. And you would have been able to see that increase in demand for blue shirts through your resale marketplace. Cause you're not producing those items. You're just seeing what people are excited about, what they're buying, what's going for higher prices, things like that. So you're able to make smarter decisions and essentially produce less, but sell more. And also maybe increase the value that you would associate with that product. If you knew if I could buy something for a hundred dollars and resell it for 60, and then psychologically I'm saying, well, maybe that my exposure here is $40 as opposed to a hundred. The fashion and apparel industry right now is on set to produce about 2.1 billion metric tons of CO2 greenhouse gases. And that's going to raise to about 3 billion, uh, three, 300, 3 billion metric tons by 2030, we needed to go down to about 1.5. And the places that we're going to see those reductions are going to be both upstream operations, which is how do we grow the plants to make these things or power the, the factories to make sure that they're using renewable energy, then also the operations within the companies themselves, vis-a-vis how the garments are made, how they're transported, all that stuff. But then also a big portion of it is how consumers treat these garments. So are we repairing them more? Are we washing them less? Are we keeping them in good quality so that it extends the life of the garments themselves and also increases their value if they can be resold, which is only useful if there's a place to resell them? There's a ton of what I call we call peer-to-peer resale happening. So customers who got something, um, maybe they got it as a gift, maybe they didn't, they had something similar, maybe their shoes gave them blisters, any of these kinds of things that like, the things are actually not super worn out. They're fairly new, they're sitting in the closet, they've been sitting in a closet for a year, you know, no one really knows what to do with them. And what's interesting is when we engage with these brands, we see customers who've never done peer-to-peer resale before, but because they trust the brand, they're, they're mm. a customer of the brand, they're like, oh yeah, I did buy that. I don't use it anymore. And I maybe I want to buy something new. Maybe I want to get a gift for somebody, whatever it is. They're like, oh, I'll sell it. And so I'll be a part of it. And you know, really what we see is like so much of this resale, um, this resale growth is coming from what's in people's closets. And so, um, you know, I follow quite a few uh, TikTokers uh, that are building, you know, kind of a presence around sustainability and how do you think more thoughtfully about your fashion consumption? And a lot of them says like the most sustainable product is the one in your closet. And I think it's so true, you know, like go through, don't, you don't have to go out and buy a new outfit for everything. You can use what's in your closet and really build that recycling. But if you're not wearing an item, if you're not engaging with it, if it's not what you go to, you can sell it on the secondary market. So it's really, I think a lot of customers or what we see is a lot of customers have already changed this behavior. It's how do we kind of expand that customer base and then engage those customers who do it even more. So say like I have uh, shoes in my in my closet that I have them more because they do give me blisters and I want to resell it, is it something where 
similar to like returning an item to a store where you need the receipt, even if you know it's like, say it's, I don't know, Steve Madden or something, like they're Steve Madden shoes. Um, and I know they're Steve Madden because it says it on the shoe. Do I, but I lost the receipt. Can I still like resell it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so it's, it, you know, yes is the answer. Yes, you can resell it. Um, we, when we work with brands, we work with them on a multitude of different ways. Um, if you bought Steve from stevemadden.com and it's in your order history, then you can sell directly from there. Um, if you bought at like a Nordstrom or somewhere else, what you can do is maybe take a picture of the item. Steve Madden will look at it, authenticate it, and then you could sell it. So it's kind of all different levels essentially of what is possible. Um, but yes, those Steve, those Steve Madden shoes have value. And if you're not wearing them, great to have someone else get value out of them. Also, Lex, I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned that I've seen as a, a, a massive shift in the past five years. A lot of people think of resale and they think they have to have high value items that are high quality that like retain their value. And what we've seen, especially with the emergence of Depop, is that there is a lot of secondhand transactions for what you could call fast fashion. Um, so items that are lower quality meant to not last very long. And I actually think that that's a really interesting consumer move that they're still buying these fast fashion brands, but then having three or four owners for the brand essentially until it hits its end of life. So I think that means the consumption is going down because you have multiple people owning the same item, but that's really been able to happen because of technology. I think that is uh, an excellent point. Um, and to put that in context, we've seen this rise of fashion of resale be something that has come on very quickly. However, it still only accounts for about one tenth of the total amount of revenue for the overall fashion industry, which is growing very quickly. So we're going to expect that to go from about a two trillion to a three trillion dollar industry, the vast majority of which will be from new clothes made and sold. And mm -hmm. so having these options available will be an incredibly important piece of it. But they're getting a lot of noise right now because they're IPOing and people and Depop is now taking over the culture and like the nineties are back in. So everyone's dressing like friends characters, which is hilarious <laughs> and great. Like there's always, you know, you're always like cool too late. You know, it's like, you get your kids growing up, you're like that was me back then. Yeah. And to keep as much value as you can, you know, if you have a, a jacket a fleece that you bought for 150 dollars, and someone's like i'll give you 10 dollars for it it's like is that really worth the recycling or reselling or whatever it may be but if you're like i can get 120 dollars for this jacket that's a huge win and i think sure. that's to your point of like how do you make really high how do you make quality products how do you work to make sure that the the way you're sourcing them in your supply chain is sustainable and then how do you make sure they live on and so i think that's really that circularity is like making great products that, you know, have as little impact as possible and then having them live on. Um, that's where I think a lot of brands North star is, and we're trying to help them get there. So what are you seeing from the, what data have you been able to sort of accumulate and then understand about how people are relating to this platform by selling within the brand's ecosystem versus on a third party seller site? Because I think it's a really good point, right? These brands spend a lot of time, energy, and money building an emotional relationship with the brand itself. So living within that ecosystem could be a very different experience from someone buying something on eBay where you don't know the provenance. You know, pleasantly surprised us, I think, is that 
uh, on average across our brand partners, 50% of the buyers of secondhand items have never engaged with the brand before. Hmm. So their customers, they're younger, um, they're excited about resale. Maybe it's possible that they couldn't afford the full price items. So this is, um, a, you know, a way to buy high quality, sustainable pieces at a lower price point. So it's essentially an entryway into the brand. So that 50%, I think has been huge for brands. I mean, from a brand perspective, it's great customer acquisition. They can pull them in, have conversations with them about the quality of their pieces, but also really creates this what we call circular lifetime value. I think a lot of brands think about customer lifetime value. It's very linear. It's very like buy more frequently and buy more when you do. And we're like, well, how do we get them to buy and then sell and then buy and then sell and really create circularity there? So bringing in those new customers is a big part of it. Hmm. And how's that been going? Have you been see it's it's young, right? This is only two years old. There hasn't been that much opportunity to see that full life cycle come to fruition or track it across a number of different cohorts? Yeah. So we've started that. We've um, launched our first brand partners last fall. So we're hitting a year now and trying to track what that looks like. Um, and we're really looking at like, what is the behavior of a customer? Um, we're seeing on, for one of our brands that we kind of did a deep dive that launched last fall, 57% of the customers uh, that bought secondhand came back and bought new. So they're hmm. also engaging in that aspect as well. Um, and then what we see that really is kind of this ROI of being in the brand ecosystem is uh, 2.5 uh, upsell on their site credit. So if someone were to sell an item, they sell it for hundred dollars, they come back to the site, they then spend about $250. So it's keeping that value within the brand ecosystem as well. The reason we think that's great is because they're buying both secondhand and new, they're engaging with this circularity. Um, they also see the value of their items. So Peak Design, one of our amazing brand partners. They do, they're a camera bag company. They make really high quality products. Uh, they actually put the value on the secondary market on their primary PDP. So if you go to like buy one of their bags, it'll say like buy a new bag for $269. And then directly underneath it says like, or you can buy a secondhand bag for $160. And they really wanted to build this aspect of circularity into their ecosystem and help their customers understand how much value is retained in their quality products. Fun fact about Peak Design, the founder of that is one half of the cohort that created the climate neutral climate yes. certification process, whom we've had a, the opportunity to bring uh, both the founder of BioLite and the CEO of Climate Neutral onto the podcast. So we are big fans of all the work that you guys do over there. Um, PDP means product description page, which I had no idea about Sorry. until I had to build one. I didn't have to build one. We had to build one ourselves. So, uh, for your esoteric out there. Yes, so, uh, um, no, come, uh, we, we live in a world of acronyms. We just <laughs> float in it. Um, <clears throat> so if, if what you're seeing then here is that the, how, do, how does this thing make money? Let's just also do this. What is the business behind both from, from each of the stakeholders, right? If I'm a customer, I buy something for $200 and I resell it for $100. How much of that $100 comes back to me? How much of it goes to the brand? How much of it goes to you? 
Yeah. Let's go through um, kind of each player in this process. So from a seller perspective, if you have, say, an outer known sweater that you want to sell, um, you could go to a third party marketplace and sell the item, but they're going to take a cut. So they take a percentage essentially of what you sell it for in order to, to list it for you and market to their their buyers. Um, so if you were to come back to outer known and sell the item, you actually get a hundred percent of the sale price in site credit. So it keeps you within that brand ecosystem, but you get more value. So if you mm. sold the sweater for $150, you get that $150 in site credit. Just and spent then, on outer known products specifically. Exactly. What if no one wants to buy the sweater? Well, you'd be surprised how much resale demand there is, um, but you know, it's <laughs> very I mean, good. That's a very, that was nice. We like that like pivot there. Okay. We're not going to pay attention to that then. If no, no but one's but I, I will say, I mean, in the three, in the three companies I've worked at for selling secondhand, the tough part is getting supply in. Once you build it, they will come. So right. if you build the resale marketplace and if you price it correctly, there are buyers for it. Um, I think maybe the price it correctly is what we work with our brands on. We have an algorithm that tells the seller like, oh, based on your condition, how old the item is and what it is, here's a price that we recommend you sell it for. Um, Can so the seller choose their own price and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm 150 or bust? Yep, they can. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, okay. That's interesting. Would you ever consider, and I, this may be tricky from the brand's perspective, but you either get a hundred percent to spend on the site itself or 80% of that money to spend on other recurate supported things. And then the brand itself keeps 20% or something along those lines. You uh, took the words out of my mouth. We actually give that optionality to brands. So to move from the seller perspective to the brand perspective, what brands can do is, is they actually can choose with Recurate how much they want to give their customers. The majority of our brands give that 100% in site credit. And then about a third of them give an option of like, hey, you can get 80% of the list price, but you can get it in cash. So you could take that money and spend it wherever you want. So some, some brands really want to give that optionality to their customers. Jess? blue screening because leading up to this um you mentioned friends and then like 15 seconds later or you're still later, on friends you, no okay friends so listen, listen listen <laughs> you mentioned friends. friends you mentioned friends and then like a minute later into the conversation you said the word pivot and so then my brain was just just a loop of ross going pivot pivot <laughs> pivot <laughs> That was an excellent episode. And also like, so interesting to understand how your, how your mind works. Like when that's just good. That's good to know. <laughs> how did you like get into the space of wanting to start, um, this reselling company? Like, yeah. So Adam and Wilson are actually our founders as employee number two. Um, so joined pretty early. But if you had told me when I was 17 that I would build a career in resale, I would be like, oh, you mean like how I go to Goodwill and try to find cool old t-shirts? Like what? <laughs> it's just not something that existed so long ago. I will not say how many years. Um, and so <laughs> for me, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice um, to be like, oh, resale is where I'm going to like put my stake in the ground of what's going to grow. Um, 
my big picture goal now that I've been in this space for a long time is that resale is as diverse and omni-channel as retail is right now. So when you say Lex, like it's still a very small percentage of what, of total transactions that are happening out there, totally hear that, but it's growing as, as a portion. And I think part of that is making it more and more accessible. So The fashion world is a a bit opaque. It's hard to break into. It's a weird space. I mean, same with Sotheby's. Like a lot of things that are actually really high quality have put some gates up around them so that it's hard to to get in. And I feel like resale is a great way for people to to engage with that. Like I um, now I used to buy winter boots at big box stores. I would use them for a season. I was from Florida, so I didn't know that you're supposed to buy like really nice boots when you moved to New York. And then they would fall apart, you know, within a year because pleather plastic is not made to go through snow <laughs> and all this, the sand and the salt and all that. And now I'm like, oh, I can buy higher, the same price point. I can buy higher quality boots secondhand. And so that's what I do. And so it was a, it was a shift for me as a consumer, someone who's been in resale, it really took me a while to be like, oh, I can, I can buy high quality things at the same price point because of resale and they'll last much longer. So now I have those same boots for years until maybe my taste changes or I want something new can sell those boots and then buy new to me secondhand boots. Um, And that's, I think, more and more behavior of what we're seeing. And that's where making it more accessible through technology is so important. I, I think that's a great point. And if you think about sort of the macroeconomic shifts that we've seen over the last 20 years, the first perhaps was sort of like the ubiquity or you could go buy things everywhere. What with global supply change, and then you could go buy everything as quickly as possible. What with like two day shipping. So there was this both ubiquity economy and then immediacy economy. And then now the transparency economy where the value of this information will be as important or at least to some degree as important as the thing itself. So do I trust it? Do I believe it? And what do I know about how I can do, like how it will carry forward in terms of its future value or will it do harm to the planet? Can it be recycled? Can it be resold? Can it be broken down into component parts? All of these things will be important to the consumer or buy land that's well above sea level with running water on it and hope for the best. Fingers crossed. Let me know where that is because my family's in Florida right now. So Ooh, you Florida might have stuff. to negotiate with uh, Bill Gates if you want any land in this country. But okay, that feels like a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> the largest landowner. Oh, okay. is he actually the largest landowner? Yeah, he bought like some plot of land in the uh, northwest or something. He's the largest landowner in America right now. All right, here's a piece of trivia for you. There, who do you think the top three largest landowners are in Manhattan? Is three, it one two, and one. Is it one the city? Kind of private landowners, private landowners, not public, okay. public land, Sorry. private landowners. All right, Trump. Yes. Trump owns nothing. Trump, <laughs> Trump's most productive property is quite literally a parking garage below Trump Tower. That is the thing that he actually owns, which generates the most revenue. The rest is licensing fees. But I digress. Number three <laughs> is Columbia University. Mm. Number two is New York University. 
And number one, the Catholic Church. Wow, I would not have guessed that. This is why people invite me to cocktail parties. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but here we are. We're, we've, we've strayed quite a ways. Um, I, Karen, I think that vision of the future is really helpful to understand sort of how these pieces are going to come together. Right. Yeah. And right now we're seeing lots of different pieces sort of scattered about, and there will be a time when they start to consolidate and make it easier from a consumer standpoint to not have to think about multiple things at the same time, but exactly. to be able to just move through the world with fluidity and get as much information as that you want from the things that you're looking to vote on with your share of wallet. Um, favorite thing that you've bought resale or that you you just, I guess, general fashion piece. Yeah. Um, so actually went to New York fashion week this year. Rachel Comey is one of our brand partners and she launched her resale platform with us during New York fashion week. It was her 20 year anniversary. It was really cool. Um, and everything I wore was secondhand, which I guess I didn't think was that crazy. Um, but I posted about it on LinkedIn and for me, it went viral. <laughs> and I was like, wow, apparently this isn't a new thing. Um, so that was a really cool experience. Um, but I have to say, I have Stuart Weitzman uh, red boots that I'm obsessed with that I always get compliments on. Um, I They just, they are pop of color. They're super fun. Stuart Weitzman was actually a podiatrist before he started designing shoes. So they're also super comfortable. Um, oh. And, you know, they're expensive retail. So they're shoes I never could afford uh, retail and then saw them bought them on the real real and I am obsessed and sing their praises to anyone who will listen. <laughs> uh, well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on board. We really appreciate you sharing your time with us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. And, and let's do it again sometime. We're here. Come on board anytime. You know exactly the room where Jess is. This is the room where I am. Where the door's always open. I love it. I well, except for mine because Lex never lets me out. That is not True. I want everyone to know that is factually false. You have your allotted times to go in and out and we've already discussed. No, I'm just kidding. I was going to say with just a room kidding. like that, why would you want to leave is really what it is. So fair point. All right. Well, Karen, thanks so much again. We, uh, we would love to talk to you again soon. All right. I see you all.